Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. I'm Caroline modaresi Tirani. This is American Metamorphosis. Cybersecurity is not just about computers and the nerdy IT guys in the basement. That's Congressman Jim Langevin. It's about the goods and services that sustain our lives. He's a commissioner for the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, a bipartisan group that builds strategy for defending the United States against cyber attacks. We need to think um, at a systemic level about the interdependencies of the technologies that run our society and that uh, now all depend on networks of computers. Disruptions to infrastructure have cascading effects. Congressman, I mean, you say you've been involved in this area for 15 years. What is the nightmare scenario that just keeps you up at night? It's the issue of an attack on critical infrastructure. If you think about how damaging it would be if there were an attack on a natural gas pipeline that shut down natural gas getting to a large portion of the country, or the electric grid being shut down, that actually caused loss of life on a large scale, that would be the nightmare scenario. Hope that we never see that. Cyber attacks on our nation's infrastructure are growing more sophisticated, frequent, and aggressive. Long lines and prices already on the rise at gas stations across parts of the U.S. on Tuesday. Malicious cyber actors today are dedicating time and resources towards researching, stealing, and exploiting vulnerabilities. This is really not a Democratic or Republican issue. This is an issue that's affecting the entire country. It affects all the American people. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast produced in partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. In our first season, we focused on presidential transitions and the myriad ways that transfer of power can impact individuals and industry, policy and progress. This fall, we're bringing you a new season, one that highlights new issues, unpacks age-old conflicts and magnifies imminent innovations. We're going to be exploring the interplay between the public and private sectors and take a new look at what we understand about transitions outside of American presidencies. Because where we're going depends on more than just who's in charge. It depends on who's pushing and pulling and how hard. And it depends on how successful we are at balancing the global and local interests that impact our world. And in the case of our discussion today, our virtual world. In this bonus episode, we're diving back into the deep, dark web, into the complex world of cyber attacks. Back when I first started this, I used to get a lot of funny looks. That's Representative Langevin again. He's a longtime Rhode Islander and a longtime cybersecurity geek. Back in 2007 and 2008, I talked about the cyber threats that are facing the country and how serious it could get if we don't wake up and work with greater urgency to better protect the country. We have come a long way, but we still have a long way to go toward really raising the education level and awareness level for 
for both members of Congress and for uh, the general public. Cybercrime is up 600% since the start of the pandemic. And in 2021 so far, we've seen just how powerful and how often these hacks are happening. In early February, a hacker gained access to the back end of a water supply system in Oldsmar, Florida, and attempted to increase the levels of sodium hydroxide by 100 times, an effort that would have slowly poisoned the population it served. The crisis was averted thanks to a sharp-eyed operator who happened to be eating lunch at his desk when he noticed the mouse on his screen moving. But that's not all. In March of this year, Microsoft Exchange had a massive cyber attack and data breach that impacted thousands of its customers. The headlines go on and on, and the hacks impact everything and everyone, from tech companies to heads of state. So what happens when these hacks go from virtual to vital? What happens when those pipelines are our lifelines? With Colonial, the, the attack happened and then you had gas shortages. So now you have panic buying, you have constituents certain calling congressional offices in places like Maryland, Virginia, Washington, D.C., saying they can't get gas. So that's where it really hit home and a cyber attack on critical infrastructure became very real to constituents, to real people, uh, where the, their lives were disrupted. The Colonial Pipeline hack temporarily took down the largest fuel pipeline in the United States, 5,500 miles from Texas all the way to New Jersey. It was done by a consortium of criminal hackers known as DarkSide. The group found a single password, logged into the back-end operation system, and locked the rest of the company out of its own mainframe, essentially holding its services, oil and gas delivery, hostage until a $4.4 million ransom was paid in cryptocurrency. On May 7, Colonial CEO Joseph Blount took the unprecedented step of shutting down one of the country's main fuel arteries for the first time in its 57-year history. We had cyber defenses in place, but the unfortunate reality is that those defenses were compromised. He also decided to pay the ransom. I made the decision to pay, and I made the decision to keep the information about the payment as confidential as possible. It was the hardest decision I've made in my 39 years in the energy industry, and I know how critical our pipeline is to the country, and I put the interests of the country first. Representative Langevin was at Blount's congressional testimony on June 9. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, good afternoon. I want to thank Mr. Blount. And, uh... and he knows firsthand that Colonial's decision, like any private companies, is entirely their own to make. So I asked the congressman, if it were to occur again, what should happen differently? Colonial is a privately held company. And despite all the talk you hear about over-regulation of industry, the baseline for government has been a kind of a hands-off approach. And current laws and regulations are permissive about voluntary compliance and cooperation with government agencies. So, you know, we prefer the companies bring CISA in, again, initially right away. But uh, when I asked the colonial uh, CEO, if for the good of the country, he would let CISA in now, he said no. They didn't do it then, and even after the fact, they still didn't want CISA on their networks. That CISA that Congressman Langevin is referring to is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. 
Their goal is to build cohesion between the public and private sectors. They work to ensure our nation's vital infrastructures are protected from attacks and that when those attacks do occur, they know how to respond. So CISA is the premier cybersecurity agency for protecting the .gov network, but they're the primary contact with the private sector, especially private sector critical infrastructure. So hopefully that would be the first call that a company would make. But often it's not, CISA isn't very well known yet, and I think it's not as well resourced as it can be and should be. There are some people who are experts within the cybersecurity field who criticize at the moment the sort of fragmented nature of our defense responses to cyber threats here in the United States. They say that there isn't a unified, singular body that is really taking on cybersecurity issues and, and threats like ransomware, etc. In a strange way, did the hacking of Colonial actually serve as a positive wake-up call, not only maybe for the general public, but perhaps for some of your own colleagues in Congress? Yeah, it, it did serve as a, as a wake-up call, I believe, and it showed that we were unprepared for a ransomware attack. And so the, the lessons learned here are that we need two things to happen. We need focus on prevention and we need focus on resilience. It seems that Colonial had, for example, an old account lying around with a reused password, a password that was also found on the dark web. So on the prevention side, you really need to do a better job uh, of the routine work of preventing cyber attacks by removing vulnerabilities. But then we need to build in resilience. Uh, you know, things are going to go wrong. Are the public and private sectors aligned on this issue? Do they have the same priorities when it comes to cybersecurity? No, they're not really because government has a different calculus than business. It's understandable. Uh, government would be you know, motivated uh, in terms of making sure that public safety needs are, are being met. We expect that uh, private sector is going to provide adequate services. And business is in the business, of course, of providing the service to make a profit. And uh, those two don't always mix. Where do you see there as being a regulation gap at the moment? Right now, the, the regulation gap is in the reporting of incident data. When a cyber incident happens, it would be ideal if that incident was reported in real time and we had all the details, information about the type of attack it was, how they get in, uh, you know, where they went, what they took, or did they implant something just all the details of the cyber incident. We would prefer to have a public-private partnership, but unfortunately, voluntary cooperation isn't always going to carry the day. There's clearly going to be some need uh, for some type of regulation. It's one of the recommendations of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, where there would be a new social contract between government and private sector, and you would have real-time information and intelligence sharing in a collaborative environment where both sides are seeing in real time the threats that, that we face. If a new social contract between the government and private sectors sounds like a complicated idea, well, it is. When the rules around disclosure are optional, it means we often don't know what or how often these crimes are happening until well after the attack. And that's a big problem. Ransomware attacks are estimated to cost $6 trillion annually starting this year, with a new organization falling victim to cybercrime 
every 11 seconds. That means that by the end of this podcast, that's more than 165 separate attacks on business, government, or infrastructure. Months after the attack on the Colonial Pipeline, I sat down with three experts in the cybersecurity field to understand the terms of this new social contract. I'm Tatiana Bolton. I'm the policy director at R Street for cybersecurity and emerging threats. Uh, we focus on supply chain security, cybermetrics, and diversity in cybersecurity. Troy Thomas. I'm a managing director with uh, the Boston Consulting Group, or BCG. I uh, focus on our work on defense and security in the public sector to include cybersecurity. But I came to BCG a few years ago after 30 years in government, where I was both uh, an Air Force officer that worked in the cyber realm, but then also led defense policy on the National Security Council in the Obama administration. I'm Dimitra Perich. I'm a chairman and co-founder of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a new nonprofit here in D.C. that's focused on cybersecurity, industrial security and environment issues. And I've been in cybersecurity for over 25 years, uh, most recently co-founded CrowdStrike, now the largest cybersecurity firm in the world. So it's safe to say that this has been on your mind for quite some time. Yeah, and I still haven't solved the problem, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll get to that in the podcast. In bringing together these three key players, I wanted to get at how we should understand cybersecurity, who the main actors are, and what's at stake. Like a lot of people, when I think about cybersecurity, I go back to probably the mid-90s when I had a giant computer in our house and you got with it McAfee or Norton or some kind of antivirus software. And I think that's where I left off in terms of my comfortability and familiarity with cybersecurity. Can you just catch us up? Where are we right now in terms of cyber threats. Certainly. And, and, and I can tell you, those were the good old days. Uh, unfortunately, they were all past when things were certainly very, very simple. But fundamentally, we're looking at three types of threats that we face. We, we have threats on confidentiality of data, um, someone trying to steal information, steal financial data um, or identity data, as may be the case with criminal groups. The second type of attack that we see in a much more rare fashion, but, but nevertheless, is a critical problem are attacks on integrity of data. So that's when someone is going to go into a network and not try to steal the data, but try to modify it, often in subtle ways to mess with the way the, the system operates. And then the third type of attack is an attack on availability of systems. So denial of service attacks, for example, that may flood a website with lots of uh, packets, with lots of information to slow it down or even make it inaccessible and to deny access to resources or access to information for um, customers of that data. So those um, are the types of attacks that we, we, we typically see, and they're being conducted by either nation states, um, so intelligence agencies and militaries of countries like Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, the United States, Israel, and others that have those phenomenal capabilities. Or um, they may be, uh, be being conducted by criminal groups. Um, so we hear a lot these days about ransomware attacks from groups often operating out of Russia. Those are not being done by the government, typically, but being done by criminal organizations, sometimes very organized criminal organizations that are doing this purely for profit. Tatiana, I mean, which kind of attack are you most concerned about? The, the things that keep me up most at night are 
all three of those categories, but they're attacks on our critical infrastructure. So um, they could be uh, an attack on the uh, IT systems that lead to an issue with the OT systems like we saw in Colonial Pipeline, right? Uh, Took down all the gas to the East Coast for uh, six days. So it's not which type of attack, I think, but sort of what the target is. Um, I think for me, we need to identify and secure our systemically important critical infrastructure. To be fair, most of our networks aren't as secure as they could be. Uh, but, you know, it's the attack on a water system, right, that that could lead to significant issues in, a, in, a, in any given city. We could see an attack in a similar way to a water system, and it leads to a poisoning of millions of people. We don't think that is uh, the highest risk right now, but it would be a, a significant consequence event. Yeah, Troy, what about you? I mean, what keeps you up at night? I share Tatiana's concern for this disruptive potential of an attack on our critical infrastructure, particularly something that impacts on our financial system or on the integrity of our food supply or even our ability to provide public health services. And those attacks are not so much that they are directly destructive, but through the manipulation of the data, as Dimitri talked about, the denial or the availability of data you can undermine both the actual delivery of that service, but you can also undermine trust in it. I would like to just assert a bit of a national security lens here and say that the other thing I worry about are state actors using very sophisticated cyber capabilities to neutralize or affect our ability to defend the United States against any form of actual military attack on our space network or other parts of our our defense infrastructure. When we read the news, when we consume stories around cyber security and particularly cyber threats, it can seem to the layperson as if the United States is constantly on the back foot and the the US is always the one sort of being attacked. How would you rank our cyber defenses today here in the US on a scale of one to 10? So Dimitri, one being the worst, 10 being the best. I would say three, um, which, which is Ouch. quite poor, but um, we're actually better than anyone else in the world, which means that everyone else is even worse. Woof. Okay, Tatiana, what about you? I would go maybe a four or a five. I mean, I wouldn't put it at three. I mean, that's low, although to be fair, we do get hit constantly. So uh, it's pretty bad. Troy, what about you? Are you giving it a, anything higher? I'm going to stick with the three. I The three to me is a function of our vulnerability and our ability to both defend against and probably more importantly, detect and respond effectively to the malware that's already in our systems. When it comes to our capabilities and stacked up against some of the countries like China and Russia, I think we're, we're better than a three, but maybe only at a five. If we are the United States and supposedly, you know, leader of the free world, huge, huge defense budget, why are we only a three out of 10? Why aren't we like a nine or a 10 out of 10? That's a great question. And, and by the way, it's, it's certainly not a function of spending because we spend more than anyone else in the world probably combined um, on this problem. But the, the real issue is we're just not organized for success. Uh, we have this agency that was newly created, uh, created a few years ago called CISA, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And unfortunately, uh, despite that name, it is an agency that, that, that is anything but that. CISA does not have authority to defend 
even the civilian government networks within the U.S. government, much less to defend the country against um, cyber threats. Um, it does not have any authority to, to defend the uh, DOD networks, the Department of Defense networks. That's someone else's responsibility. We've just diversified the responsibility for protection of our systems to individual private sector entities, to individual government entities with no overarching strategy, with no regulations on what everyone should be doing. So at the moment, we're just spinning our, wheel, our wheels and uh, spending lots and lots of money on various things that are barely providing any benefit to us. Tatiana, would you agree with that? The problem is that, like he said, we have no uh, standards governing minimum cybersecurity standards across the board. Private sector isn't working well with the federal government. I'd have to also agree on the CISA point. The agency isn't staffed for success. It's not resourced for success. If you take the, like, as you mentioned, $700 billion for defense every year, says it gets $2 billion. So as a proportion of risk to the United States, why is cybersecurity being funded at such a low level as compared to DOD? It's almost like setting up an agency, not resourcing it at all, setting extremely high standards, and then watching it fail and saying, well, see, it doesn't work. But I think part of the problem is that if you don't, if you don't invest in it, how, how do you expect it to be good? That's a great question, Dimitri. I mean, what do you say then? I mean, Tatiana is saying it needs more money, more resources. You're saying we have enough money and resources directed towards this sector anyway. Look, I, I've never seen a government agency that, that has uh, not said that they need more money. And the reality is $2 billion is an enormous amount of money. It's bigger budgets than any private sector entity out there. Um, and, and look, there, there may be a case to be made that we need to spend more money. I would argue that we need to spend the money that we're spending much more efficiently. Uh, but the fundamental issue is authorities. Uh, why spend any money when you don't have the authorities to actually defend anything? Um, that is the fundamental issue that we face. And unfortunately, in Washington, D.C., we have a bunch of parochial interests in Congress and in the government that do not want to relinquish their power, do not want to relinquish their budgets, and want to uh, create stovepipes. And that just cannot work in, in this domain. You know, I completely agree with you that there is definitely uh, efficiency to be gained from, uh, from all of the agencies that are working on cybersecurity, as is true for all agencies across the federal government. But broadly, we've got $700 billion in defense for missiles and tanks and planes, what are we putting our money in? The theoretical air war with China? Uh, what's the actual risk? We're getting hit every day in, with cyber attacks to the tune of like trillions of dollars in losses every year. But we seem to be accepting that risk. And for the record, we don't even know how big the number is because most private companies don't tell the federal government, don't announce publicly that they've been hacked. So we don't, we only see one small portion and it's huge. So I think, you know, leadership in it, uh, Fixing these stovepipes, I think that that will be key. But I, you know, I I agree that all agencies ask for more money. Uh, but I think in CISA's case, it it makes sense. Troy, you served in the White House on the National Security Council. You were a special assistant to the president for the National Security Affairs. Uh, you know, you've been senior director for defense policy. I mean, can you just give us your from your vantage point? You know, is is the situation, as, as Dimitri was alluding to, is it a case of being too parochial? Is it too fragmented in government? First of all, as on this policy issue, but certainly on a lot of others, we are too fragmented and driving sort of unity of effort across the federal government 
is challenging enough to do on on a whole range of policy issues, but cyber in particular proves to be um, a, a difficult one, in part for the reasons that have been raised. Um, either the authorities aren't aren't there, or they are conflicting, or they're unclear. Um, the capability is not there, and this gets to the investment point. There is tremendous cyber capability in the U.S. government, but it is not necessarily used for the protection of our critical infrastructure on a day-to-day basis. But I think the other point is the solution here to improving our defenses in cyberspace um, largely do reside in the private sector. If we think about the spending on cybersecurity across the country, it goes well beyond the $2 billion. And because most of our critical infrastructure actually resides in the private sector, I actually think the game changer is going to be less about organizational change in the federal government, better policy alignment, or even giving CISA more money. I think it's going to be a lot more about how we incentivize uh, the, the private sector to both provide for better security but more importantly, since our defenses are always going to be penetrated, to be in a more resilient position and to be more open to collaborating with the federal government and law enforcement agencies to hold people accountable for uh, the cyber attacks. Troy is exactly right that the um, vulnerabilities, by and large, are in the private sector. I will disagree with him on one point, though. We're not going to incentivize our way out of this problem. We've been trying that for 30 years. The industry is is does not want to be incentivized um, to do cybersecurity. That's very, very clear. And I'm going to use the R word. We're going to need regulation. We're going to need to force these companies to do the right thing. Um, I don't think they should be prescriptive regulations. I don't think the government should be coming in and telling companies what technologies to buy and how to deploy them, but we should be holding them accountable for the outcome. And that is absolutely um, going to be part of the solution that we're going to have to deploy here because the current situation is not sustainable. These companies are not doing the right things, by and large. They're not spending what's necessary, and we're going to have to force them to do so. It seems like it would be really counterintuitive to someone's bottom line to not want to fully make sure that they had robust cyber defenses. Why don't companies want to do it? A lot of them are still under the belief that they won't get hit, that they're if they're not you know, a well-known company, if they're a small municipality that's running a water treatment plant, They'll, they'll think no one knows who we are, no one's going to care, no one's going to attack us. And of course, that's not true. Um, the reality is that many companies fall victim to opportunistic attacks where someone may notice that they're vulnerable uh, by simply scanning the internet and will infiltrate them and hold them hostage via a ransomware type of attack or steal their data or try to mess with their systems. That is commonplace now. And there are too many organizations out there that still think that they can avoid it by literally keeping their head in the sand. I would also add that even those that do spend a lot of money on cybersecurity, like those in the financial sector, for example, right? Some of the strongest cybersecurity across all of the critical infrastructure sectors, um, they will still spend uh, to a point, but then accept other risks, right? Because they make a business decision that spending uh, X amount of dollars is worth it, but spending Y is too much. 
from a business sense, uh, you know, accepting a certain dollar value of risk, you know, makes sense to them at the bottom line. So it becomes a collective action problem. Individually, every business makes a decision for themselves and protects or doesn't protect their networks based on their own individual risk. But what happens is we're not individuals in individual companies across the country in terms of national security. It is a national issue, which is why I completely agree with Dimitri that we do need regulation in the space. Uh, you know, the best protected sectors are those where the um, the agency that is responsible for their uh, oversight has regulatory authority. And so it, you see that with energy, you see that with, um, with treasury and the financial sector. I, I will take this point that I, I do think the old incentives won't work anymore. And we may be at a regulatory tipping point. I reflect back about a decade ago when I was part of a team that was making a push for two things on the Hill. One was for mandatory reporting and the other was for mandatory standards. We didn't get either. We got a, a cybersecurity framework that's quite good, you know, published by NIST, that uh, created uh, voluntary standards, helped foster a market, uh, quite candidly, I think, as people tried to meet those standards. And we, we tried to encourage people to report, but no one actually was uh, held accountable for reporting. And so what you see now is a little bit of a tipping point where, like, particularly given um, the, the vulnerability of our, our critical infrastructure, that at least for the federal government and for those that do business with the federal government, we may be in a position to hold them accountable for reporting and possibly standards. Um, but that won't apply to the entire commercial sector, really only to those that are working directly with the federal government and are getting federal government contracts. With so little consensus on how to implement these changes or alignment on what the funding might look like going forward, how do we go from a cybersecurity score of three to, well, something better? Here's where Tatyana Bolton, Dmitry Alpovich, and Troy Thomas, and many others, agree. The solution lies in the balance of standardized regulation and stronger communication between the private and public sectors. That means making it harder for the bad guys to get in, but being transparent when they inevitably do. This cooperation between public and private also requires a baseline increase in cyber literacy. And for BCG's Troy Thomas, that literacy needs to start in our workplaces. I think we should also, all of us at an individual level, but at a company level, invest more time in preparing for what we will do when we do suffer a cyber uh, attack that is disruptive because it's human behavior that ultimately is what uh, you know allows access to many of our, our networks. So it's not just about education, but it's about cyber skills in the workforce. So I think, for example, CEOs really running tabletop exercises to think through what they will do if there's a ransomware attack, not trying to make hard decisions the day of for the first time. So I think more can be done to just role play and prepare mentally for what's to come so that when you're in the moment, you make better choices, like reporting that you've been attacked. What does victory look like here? I mean, is victory even possible? I think that's a fantastic question and one that actually is not being asked much today, but we need to be realistic about, about that concept. 
I think victory means that we do not suffer daily onslaught of disruptive attacks against our economic interests, like the ransomware attacks we're seeing today. Those need to be off limits, and we need to impose severe costs in response to those attacks to make these actors understand that they will pay a really major price for those operations. You know, I think, you know, we want to just get it down to a reasonable level, kind of like crime, right, today. You know, we don't expect zero uh, murders or uh, burglaries or, you know, uh, assault and batteries. We have a system in place to address them when they happen, but we don't expect it to happen very often. Uh, We create a safe environment, right, where most people feel uh, comfortable walking down the street in any given city. we want to do the same thing for cyberspace, where uh, we're aware of the threat, we have a plan to tackle it, uh, and when it does happen, we have the response capabilities. Uh, but we're but we're holding the criminals accountable when they attack. We need to change our strategy in terms of how we approach defense. For the last thirty years, we have focused on how do we prevent someone from getting into the network. And as Troy mentioned, that's an impossibility. Someone will always find a way in. There is always going to be vulnerability you don't know about. So we really need to focus on one key concept, and that is speed. Speed of identification and ejection of attackers from your network. That's how everyone needs to be thinking about this, not building the tallest wall that no one can climb over, because guess what? Someone will. But realizing that when someone does, you can pick them up within seconds, within minutes, and eject them before they're able to do anything damaging to your network. And we need to start holding companies accountable for those speed-based metrics. Troy, what about you in terms of realigning that public-private relationship, evolving that relationship? Is speed the answer? Speed is definitely part of the answer. I mean, defense has to happen at network speed, which means that people can't be taking their time to decide whether or not to report a breach. It needs to almost be automated. But for, for breach reporting to be automated and to get speed, industry has to see the benefit of the collaboration with government. Collaboration with government can't be perceived as a risk or creating a liability. So that's why you see initiatives to provide liability protection. And to the point that has been made before about investing in government capability, what the government shares and how it shares it has to be more useful to industry so that it builds trust. We have to remember that when we initially tried to create mandatory reporting and mandatory standards over a decade ago, it came on the heels of a lot of uh, privacy breaches uh, and domestic surveillance activities that were very controversial politically in this this country. Um, We've moved on from that, but there's still a legacy there. So companies have to feel comfortable that they can share with government in a way that their shareholders are comfortable with um, and that protects them in the course of, of providing that information. You know, I agree with everything Troy and Dimitri just said. I would also add that I think this starts at the top. It starts at the presidential level, at the White House level, at the CEO level uh, of companies, making sure that the buck is stopping with them, that we see that CEOs take accountability for breaches that happen within their company. At that point, I think they will start to care more about how much cybersecurity they're paying for on a day-to-day basis. I also think that the White House and the National Cyber Director at this point, Chris Inglis, 
should start talking more to the American people, just like the NCSC director of the UK does with the public, sharing uh, information about threats, explaining what's going on to them, making it a common understanding of, of the issues and the vulnerabilities that we face, uh, taking it away from the, the concept that like, you know, uh, hackers are like these guys in hoodies and basement that are, you know, attacking networks that you don't care about and thinking about it from the perspective that the hacker could mess with my water system. The water that's coming out of my tap could be affected if we don't care about cybersecurity. I think we just need to make this a, a kitchen table issue. We need to sort of come around to the concept that this is a one team, one fight, right? It's all of us working together, the federal government, private sector, uh, the public to defend our networks and to protect our nation. Uh, we, we need to, you know, we need to do that. And I think that starts with leadership. I wanted to ask Congressman Langevin about his idea of victory. What the next steps look like for someone squarely in the public sector. It's been a challenge to educate my colleagues and the American people as well. I had to educate myself. The thing that's educated people the most, unfortunately, is the high profile, high level cyber intrusions or cyber attacks that have affected the country, whether it's the personal and private information that was stolen uh, from the target hack going back several years ago, uh, or the latest colonial uh, pipeline incident, or the solar winds cyber attack. Certainly people understand it's an issue now. So we're getting there. Now we need to work more closely with the private sector to get them uh, more secure and more resilient. And then, of course, the American people are an important part of this equation as well. We all have a role to play in cybersecurity. And if the American people can do their part in practicing good cyber hygiene, using those strong passwords, applying your security patches, using multi-factor authentication, all the things that will make it more difficult for the bad guys to get in, but more resilient if they do get in, that they are not held hostage to a cyber incident or attack. Those are the things that will get us to a much stronger place in protecting all of us in cyberspace. While victory is not ensured, it is clear that some kind of transformation is inevitable. As has so often been the case, a national crisis has spurred deep conversations about the way that the public and private sector interact and competing visions of how to shift the status quo. It's something that's happened time and again, not just in cybersecurity, but in every industry, from energy to transportation, nonprofits to NASA. It's these moments that we're gonna be exploring in the second season of American Metamorphosis. We hope you'll join us. Until then, stay safe and protect your passwords.